Welcome to the NPFCC Messages Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to prioritize your spiritual growth by intentionally absorbing the Word of God. In this message series, Foundation, we're taking a close look at our core beliefs and how our foundational understanding of the nature of God guides the way we live and see the world. Our prayer is that we would build our foundation on the words and the way of Jesus. You know, we're in week five of this series called Foundation. And, and really, the, the sermon series came about because we're, we're just looking around at our world and we're thinking, man, there's so much about what is happening in our world that seems unsure. People, you know, after a couple years of craziness, people are like, it's like everything is up for grabs. And people are wondering, like, what can I really anchor myself to? What, what is it that's not going to just change tomorrow? What is it that I can trust? What is it that I can hold on to? And we realized that we wanted to make sure that we are building a firm foundation that can't be shaken and building this unshakable faith. And today, I think, is really part of the core of the whole reality of what it means to build an unshakable faith as we talk about God's word. Because we, we want our homes, our marriages, our kids, everything to stand firm in the midst of a crazy and chaotic world. But I'm going to start out this morning by, by um, just kind of uh, taking some time of confession um, with you guys. Um, I have a problem. Um, it's, it's a problem that has gotten me into trouble uh, with my parents when I was younger. It's a problem that still persists in my life today, and it's been the reason for tension at times in our marriage. It's a problem that my daughters will actually tease me about. My problem is um, called selective hearing. When my mom would say something to the effect of, hey, come to the table, it's time for dessert, no problem. I heard that just fine, right? But when my mom would say, hey, can you please take out the trash, it's like, like nothing, right? Just, I'm just not hearing that. Brenda, Brenda will say like, hey, can you help me make the bed? And I'm like, did I hear something, Right? But then if she says, hey, how about we go to bed, I'm healed, right? I mean, if you come up to me and you, you want to talk about the Dodgers, I'm all ears, right? But if you want to come up to me and start talking about your favorite TV series that you're watching, like Yellowstone or something, it's like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I probably will start talking to you about the Dodgers, Right, just because it's like, and I've tried, I've tried a bunch of these, some of these series, but I just, I just don't seem to be able to do it. But if I'm honest, I don't think at the core that my problem is a hearing problem. It has more to do with my appetites, my desires, what I'm interested in, and what, to be honest, I want to hear. And while we're getting honest, I guess today we call it getting real. Um, the reality is sometimes I feel the same way about the Bible. I mean, sometimes I read it and it's like nothing. It's like, it, it feels like it's going in one ear and out the other. And then sometimes I, I just read a teeny bit of it and I can't get enough. I have this insatiable desire to spend hours and hours reading, studying, meditating. And I'm wondering this morning if anybody in the room shares my struggle. Do you, do you struggle with like reading the Bible and going, what? What, what, what was that all about? I mean, do you, but here, here's the deeper question. Um, do you think it's a reading or a hearing issue? 
Or, or could it maybe at the core, could it be a heart issue or a priority issue? So this morning, we're going to talk about this this morning because I really believe at the core, God's word is the most important part of our foundation. You, you see, from a faith standpoint, I mean, we're going to talk about this morning, what is the Bible, right? What, what is the Bible all about, right? It, it's not just, a, you know, it's the, the best-selling book of all time. Um, there's still, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies get sold, you know, every year just here in the U.S., millions of copies. Somebody estimated that um, over the time since it's been in print, that it's been over 50 billion copies of the Bible that, that have been printed, way more than anything else. But from a faith standpoint, God's word, as it is given to us in the Bible, is the most important ingredient in our faith foundation. Um, we were talking about going to Mexico, and um, when we go to Mexico, one of the things that, all, uh, that we all learn is how to mix cement, right? Because the first day is foundation day. And um, there's lots of different ways to do it, but there's these ingredients that go together, right? There's rocks and there's sand, and then there's the cement, right, that holds it all together and binds everything together so that when you get it on the ground, it will harden and create this foundation. And I really believe like the Bible is like the cement. It's like the glue that holds all these things together for us in the Bible because the Bible is like the litmus test for our faith. It is where we discover spiritual truth about God, about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, things we've been talking about the last several weeks, even where we learn about sin and salvation, where like we said last week, the, the word of God coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Man, there are days, I mean, the Bible, the gospel, the word of God, it is offensive to me because it keeps telling me what a sinner I am. But it draws me in so that I, found, I find trust and forgiveness in God. It is the, it is the tangible means. It's the, this tangible piece, I believe, in our faith. This one means for keeping our faith in check. It's a place where we go when we want to know if an idea that I hear, that I see on YouTube, that I just pops into my head, you have no, I mean, I'm sitting here as a pastor today. Here's the real confession. There's a lot of heresy that pops into my head every week. There's a lot of things that pop into my mind. I'm like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And Brenda can tell you, my mind is always going. I'm like, what, what about this way? What about, what if it's like this? What if it's like this? But the thing that centers me in the middle of it all is God's word. Because that's a place I go to check. Whether it's an idea that I hear from another pastor on a great podcast or whether I'm watching a YouTube thing or whether it's just an idea in my head. I take it to God's word and I weigh it against God's word and God's word is the place where I discover whether or not that is true. And 2 Timothy 3 um, verse 16 it says, all scripture is God breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, I need a lot of that, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, we, a couple weeks ago, as we were looking at, at the, the foundational part of who God is, we talked about creation, and then last week we talked about the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what else was brought to life when God breathed? You remember that? Yeah, we were. We were, so there's something that ought to resonate, right, in, in, in God's words. 
Yet you and I, uh, we were brought to life by God's word. It was his breath that caused us to come to life. And it's that same breath that moved and inspired the writing of scripture. All scripture is God breathed. And, and so what we believe about the Bible is, is that they, the Bible is the very words of God. And like I said, it's this one thing in, in, a, in, a, in a faith where so much is unseen. The Bible, I love the Bible because it's this one, it's this tangible piece that we can actually have with us. And it says, hey, this is the thing that is going to help you discern what is true and what is not. I mean, let's all admit it. I mean, you can go and you can Google anything today and find the answer you want. I mean, I've always said about Wikipedia, right? It's just all of our collective ignorance piled into one place. So how do you determine, like, what, what, what's right, what's wrong, what is true? Well, the most basic of all Christian beliefs is that the Bible is the very words of God. And we use words like infallible and errant, which often cause great deals of argument. I, I, the, the devil does a really good job trying to, like, take something that's amazing and then get us to argue about it, Right? And especially uh, people who are educated way beyond their usefulness. They just spend all day long like arguing over these things. What I have come to trust in is that God has been involved from the very beginning in the development of the Bible. And, and he has directed, guarded the process so that we have exactly what we need in order to grow in relationship to him. You, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in seminary dissecting it, pulling it apart, you know, doing textual criticism and all these crazy things and, and just like literally ripping the Bible apart. And, and I, I have to tell you, there, there were times in my life where I was like, I was like why are we doing this? Because the, the faith part of me says this, a lot of the stuff doesn't matter because by faith I believe that what God did was he gave us, even in the translation processes, that God has given us exactly what we need to build our faith. I would contend that the Bible is the primary means for knowing and learning how to follow Christ. It's the main way we know God's will for our lives, and I believe it is the most basic way to deepen our relationship with God, and it's by spending time in God's Word, the Bible. But, but why is it so many of us struggle spending time in God's Word, and when we do, we struggle with having it go in one ear and out the other, never discovering what life could really be like if we faithfully applied what we read to life. It, I, it's certainly not an accessibility issue today, right? I mean, we, we have... An we have incredible accessibility to God's word. I, I mean, we, we, have, we have the written form. Now, one of the things we need to understand is um, for the first 1,500 years of the Christian faith, people didn't like have a quiet time where they sat and opened their Bible because they didn't have one. I mean, they, 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 didn't, they didn't have a Bible accessible to them. They, they went to church where they heard it, and, and so it, it was for a long time. I mean, it's only been in the last, like, five to 600 years that we've even had 
the kind of access we've had to the print, printed word. And now you not only have that, but you've got it electronically, right? I mean, you've got, you've got, it, you've got it on your phones. I mean, think about that. I mean, I, I, I remember, like, you know, lugging my Bible around everywhere, right? And I had this big old giant King James thing. And, and now it's like, it's just, it's just right there. Which, which part of that for me says, wow, you know what God has really done? He's eliminated most of our excuses. Um, so it's definitely not a, a, an accessibility issue. In a recent study by the Barna Group that studies all things kind of Christian and religious, it says that, now this is interesting, 76% of Americans still believe that the Bible is either the literal, literal or the inspired word of God. But the problem is it's down from 82% in 2009. Yet less than half of the people, okay, so a lot of the people, a lot of people are saying, yes, we believe that the Bible's God word, God's word, right? I've heard that somewhere. I'm pretty sure that's true. But what's amazing about that is, is less than half of the people could name one of the four gospels. Right, so all these people are going, yeah, I think that's God's word. But then they said, okay, what, what are the gospels? And some of you are sitting here this morning going, uh-oh. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? We, we, we talk about the gospels a lot. It's a story of Jesus. But, but it's amazing that out of all those people that say, yeah, I think God's, that the Bible's God's word, really, you know what? Uh, only one in four could, could identify the gospels. So um, now, then here's another one. Only 20% of the people... Um, could name which book the Ten Commandments were in, right? So where are they? Now, how many of you knew that they were in more than one place, right? There, there are two places in the Bible, Exodus and, yeah, Deuteronomy, right? We're, we're having a quiz time this, today. You didn't know you were coming for the pop quiz. So um, only 10% knew which book contained the Sermon on the Mount, Right? So, so where's the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, Matthew, good job. So you guys are above average. I knew that was the case, right? So the, one of the big problems that we're, we're struggling with right now is among millennials, these numbers just plummet. And, and, and so in terms of what we believe about the Bible, um, we, we have our work cut out for us. When we talk about the, and so in the study, in the study that was done by Barna Group, they, they gave the top reasons that were given for people not studying and not applying God's word to their lives were time, belief in the Bible's relevance, and questions about the reliability or authenticity of the Bible. So when it comes to the problem of time, I think what we're talking about is really an issue of priorities, right? We, we make time for what we deem as most important. And, and the Barner, by Barner's research, it says that um, we believe um, that the latest television series, the latest social media stuff, are more important than receiving revelation from God's Word. Because I don't know about you, but do you spend more time in the Word of God, or do you spend more time on social media and all these other things that fill our minds. So we either don't believe that this word is truly from God, or we believe somehow that we are competent enough to live life 
without his instruction. So then there's the question of relevance. And, and there, there are people that think that the Bible is, you know, outdated, that it doesn't apply to the things of the world today. And, and let's get honest. Most of the time that people are talking about that, if they're saying something like that, it's because what they're really saying is, I'm going to feel out of place living the way the Bible instructs me to in today's world. That what we're saying is that it's more important for us to fit into the cultural norms of society than it is to live under God's timeless directives. God, through his living word, still has the best plan for your relationships, your parenting skills. How many could use a few more of those, right? Yeah, God's word is still the best place to go. Your time management, your career choices, your social interactions. God still has the best financial advice available, and he has for sure the most fulfilling retirement plan. What God's word will not teach you is how to compromise or bend into the culture that wants to tell you that truth is just relative to every individual's experience, that all roads lead to the same direction, and that your pursuit of happiness is the most important determining factor for what is best for your decisions at any given moment. That's what God's word won't tell you. Because we believe that the Bible, quite simply, is truth. The Bible is truth. The, the world thinks that we all have our own truth, right? You have your truth, you do your truth. And like we always say, the problem with that is what happens when our truths start to collide? I would contend that we're seeing that in our world today that we're seeing what happens when we think that we have our own truth and then all of a sudden all of our truths start to intersect in ways that cause all kinds of chaos. But the Bible is truth. John 8, uh, 31 and 32, um, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, right, to his word, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We really like that part. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. People love that because everybody wants to be free, especially here in America, right? We love that verse. What we, what we oftentimes neglect is the, the verse right before that says, you'll really be my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching, right? So there's the caveat. You have to remain faithful to it in order for it to set you free. So it says the truth will set you free. Then in John 17, 17, it says Jesus is talking about he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for you and me. And he says this, sanctify them by your truth. He's praying to God. He says, your word is truth. Now, I'm not a great mathematician or anything, but I was thinking like if I could break this down into an equation, right? A plus B equals C and all that stuff. That if if the truth will set you free and his word is truth, then God's word, the Bible, is what sets us free. If you're living in bondage from anything, if you're living with fear, anxiety, doubt, all kinds of things, if you've got issues in your life, the, the core is to get into God's word because it has the power to set us free and to transform our lives. When you read those two verses together, we realize that obedience to God's word is the most freeing thing available to us. This morning, I want to give you a, a, a quick look into some of the evidence of the reliability of the Bible. Many of you have heard this before, but I always think it's kind of like filling your car up with gas, 
right? You have to do it every once in a while or eventually you're going to get stuck somewhere. So, um, so the evidence for the reliability of the Bible, there's so much of it. Um, when people come in and they kind of doubt, like, is the Bible really God's word? Um, so there, first of all, there's historical evidence. There's more reliable historical evidence that the people, places, events of the Bible are all real more than any other historical writings. Many of the oldest known human writings um, um, produce evidence for the biblical narrative, right? So, in fact, some of the oldest writings that we actually have, like the oldest stuff that we possess, um, is something called the Elba Tablets. We have a picture of them, I think, up here. Yeah, and there are these little tablets that were found in, found in Elba, Syria, and um, they were discovered in 1968. Um, and they were written. Um, they, they were written in two, uh, 2,500 BC. So, 20, so this is just this is like even right around the time or before Abraham, right? That the, the, these things were written down, and so we actually have these things. And what's amazing is that there's 1,700 of these tablets that were found. And what's amazing is in most of them, there is something that confirms something in the Bible, like places and people. They, they found a whole copy of, of part of Genesis chapter 14 in, in these tablets that were found somewhere else by this whole different people group. You're like, man, so there's incredible evidence, and this is some of the oldest stuff we have. There's another set of tablets called the Mari tablets, okay? And these things were found in 1935. They talk about Abraham, Jacob, uh, Daniel, Levi, Benjamin, Ishmael, and all these other biblical characters. And again, there was like 25,000 of these tablets found in 19, and th that were written in 1900, or yeah, 1900 BC. So there's, there's also, there's more evidence that Jesus walk the face of this earth than there is that Aristotle, Plato, or even Julius Caesar existed, which is pretty amazing. Uh, Non-Christian non historians wrote a lot about the life of Jesus, which, which is really great because it's not just like a Christian perspective. All these other writers wrote about Jesus so we can go, okay, Jesus really, Jesus was really this guy that lived and did what he said he did because um, there's a, a guy uh, the Roman historian, a guy named Tacitus, he, he, what, he wrote pretty much most of everything that we have that we know about Julius Caesar, right? And, and he wrote this thing called The Annals Concerning Roman History, and in chapter 44 of this work, um, this is what Tacitus says. He says, there was the one called Christ, which means Messiah, and he suffered uh, the extreme penalty of crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of the procurator or pro procurator Pontius Pilate. And he goes on to, to describe Jesus and who Jesus is. Okay, and so this is from a, a Roman historian that, that was not a believer. And he's writing all about like the life of Jesus. Um, and, and so then there's evidence from a, the Jewish historian Josephus who writing, uh, who was writing the history of the Jewish people. And here's what he writes. He says, now about this time there was a man named Jesus, a wise man, if it's lawful to even call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. 
He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among the Jews, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophet had foretold. These and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and, the, and these people of the Christians, um, so named because they are, sorry, um, so named from him are not extinct today. So he, he's talking about like how, how he, from a perspective, historical perspective, he's talking about who Jesus is. So there's incredible historical evidence to support the truth of the Bible. Then there's this, this literary evidence, if you're doing like literary criticism. Um, this, this part is, is absolutely mind-blowing if you really understand it. Um, it. The unity of the Bible is incredible. There's 66 books in the Bible, right? And, um, and 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. And it was written by over 40 different authors. Now, most of them never met each other or read each other's stuff. And it was written over a period of 2,000 years, and yet as you read through it, it tells this incredibly unified story, which is pretty amazing. And the literacy evidence gets even more amazing when we look at the way that the Bible was preserved through history. If you take just the New Testament alone, we have over 25,000 ancient manuscripts dating as far back as 120 AD. Now, which is only about 20 to 30 years from when the last book of the New Testament was written. And, and what's amazing about that is they were found in an area that extends all the way from Italy, Greece, Turkey, Israel, Syria, even into Egypt. So the, the, it's all widespread. And so they found, what, what this means is they found all these documents, and when they brought them all together... What they discovered is it's, there is only a 0.05% variance in its writing, which means that there is more care given to the preservation of this than any other document known to man. I, the, by the, the next best ancient literature that we have is from um, Homer's Iliad. How many of you had to read that in school, Right? Okay, but here's what's amazing is we only have 643 manuscripts of this book from, from the time that it was written, okay? And they have between all of those, right? And it's just, it's just a story, right? But even in those 643, there's 5% variance. In other words, they got, they got things mixed up in there, right? From copy to copy to copy. And, and then there's the works of Aristotle, we only have 49 copies of those, and in, in more recent times, what we've discovered, scholars believe that we actually don't have anything actually written by Aristotle. What we have are the notes of his students, and when you put all those 49 copies together, there's over a 20% variance, which would make sense if they were copied from students and things like that. Then you've got the works of Tacitus that we just talked about where we get a majority of our history of, of Rome and of who Julius Caesar is, there's actually only 20 copies. And, and the variant in that is, is super widespread. It's like 20 to 25%. So if you think about this and, and you look at that in comparison to one another, we have this little chart here, right? I mean, look at the comparison of 
like how much evidence there are that, and, and this is 25,000 copies, that's just our New Testament. Okay, that's not the New and the Old, that's just the New Testament. And so we have more evidence that this stuff is real than, I mean, there's more evidence that Jesus was who he says he was than there is that Julius Caesar even existed. And I don't think there's anybody in the room that doubts that Julius Caesar existed, right? And it's amazing to us that, that, that when you think about the care that went into preserving this for us, there's all kinds of archaeological evidence. Um, I, I love this quote by Nelson uh, Gluick, who is one of the most respected archaeologists of the 20th century, and he said this. He says, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. So this, the Bible is full of this incredible evidence. There's prophetic evidence, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Bible prophecies that that came true, um, and all of that doesn't happen by chance. Second Peter uh, 1, 20 and 21 says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Reminding us again that the Holy Spirit has been watching over this process the entire time. So it's quite obvious that, that our Heavenly Father, under the watchful guidance of the Holy Spirit, has given us a revelation of himself in the Bible. And if this is the case, I mean, if, if this is really true, then how in the world can we neglect it? I mean, David Platt, the author of the book Radical, reminds us that our brothers and sisters around the world, and, and I'm going to get to go spend a week with them. Our brothers and sisters around the world often gather, sometimes at the risk of their own lives, to hear and study God's word. If we're going to join them in living lives of complete trust and radical obedience to Christ, we must begin with our Bibles opened, asking God's Holy Spirit to direct our thoughts, to give us wisdom, and enliven our senses, not just to know the information in the Bible, but to allow God's word to penetrate our hearts and direct us in action. You know, I think for, for far too long, many of us have kind of played church reading our Bibles out of obligation and neglecting to study God's word in a way that will truly transform our lives. So, here's the, here's the, the last question today. How are we supposed to respond to this amazing gift of God's word that he's given to us. I think the first thing is James 1.22 says, don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves. He says, do what it says. The author Dallas Willard says, the Bible is not just meant for information but designed for transformation. This only happens when we take it seriously enough to apply it to our daily lives. One great example of this is found in the story that Devin mentioned earlier. Uh, King Josiah. Uh, I, it's an amazing story. If you get a chance today and, and you just want to dive into the Word, uh, go to 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. It's this incredible story, like Devin mentioned, 
that we have King Josiah who came to power when he was only eight years old. And I love that, right? I mean, I love the fact that as we're sitting in here, we have a bunch of kids who are down, actually in both of our other buildings, we have, we have young people who are studying God's word. And I love that they're building on this foundation of faith. Because here's this eight-year-old, and, and you would think, oh, you know, he must have had really great parents that taught him God's word. The reality is, is that's not the case. His father, Ammon, I mean, this guy was, was horrible, right? His grandfather, Manasseh, this guy, he was one of the worst kings of Israel, or, uh, of Judah. He brought Asherah poles, okay, which were actually these giant statues of like phallic symbols and all kinds of crazy stuff, brought them into the temple. He brought God, the gods of Baal into the temple of God and desecrated the whole thing. This is like the king of, of Judah who's allowing these things to, to come into their places of worship. But somehow, somehow Josiah, when he's eight years old, he has this incredible heart for God. And what we find out is that um, it says in verse 2 of uh, chapter 22 that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and completely followed, and I love this, the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Did you know that he got, in Scripture, they totally bypassed all of his like, ancestry. They went all the way back. They said, you know what? This guy comes from the line of David. He, he, he's like his father, David, not like all the other guys in between. He's like David, and he follows the word of the Lord. And so um, Josiah had this, when he, like Devin mentioned, when he was 26 years old, um, what he noticed was, hey, the temple's not supposed to be like this. And so he sets out on this campaign to kind of do a total home makeover of the temple. And he tells um, some of his people, he tells his secretary, a guy named Shaphan, uh, to go talk to the high priest, a guy named um, Hilkanah, and he says, hey, tell Hilkanah, he says, to, to get ready to kind of redo the temple, to kind of clean things up in there. And they start giving people money, and like, like we mentioned earlier, they, as they're cleaning up the temple, right, as they're, as they're like taking out the junk, it's kind of like picture you cleaning your garage, right? They're like moving stuff around, they're grabbing stuff, and then all of a sudden they uncover, which think about what this means. They uncover this book. And what's amazing is, is that the secretary of the king, Shaphanah, he doesn't even know what it is. And he takes this book, and he takes it to the high priest, and he goes, hey, I found this old book. And so what's amazing is then the high priest, Hilkiah, he, he says this, he says, he goes, oh my gosh, that's the book of the law. And so he takes, so then the, the secretary takes it to Josiah. And he says, hey, we found this old book in the temple that the high priest thinks you'll be interested in. And he starts reading it. Now, here's what you need to understand about this, okay? Um, I, I know there's a lot of you reading through the Bible this year. Some of you are doing, like some of us are doing the chronological Bible. When it says, hey, he found the book of the law, right, he didn't find most of your favorite parts, he found, like, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, and we don't know where he started reading. By his response, I'm guessing it was probably somewhere either in the law parts of Exodus, Leviticus, or, or Deuteronomy, right, where it says, hey, be careful, because if you don't obey this law, you're in big trouble. 
Um, and, and so he starts reading from the Old Testament to the king. And then in verse um, 11 of chapter 22, it says, when the king heard this, he tore his robes, which was a sign of like total like indignation. He's just like, oh my gosh, like we have really messed up. Here's what's, here's what's incredible. Back in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 18, um, God said, hey, I'm going to take you to the promised land. And when I take you to the promised land, you're going to have this amazing place that, that I've got prepared for you. But when you go there, some of you are going to get prideful. Your hearts are going to get hard. And I don't want you to follow other gods. And he said, so the, the first thing he says, and then you're going to ask me for a king. Like God was already foreseeing all of this, right? He says, and when you do, he says, soon as this person, whoever he is, becomes king, the first thing, you know what the first thing the king had to do, the king of Israel, what he was required to do to be king? He had to write down by hand his own copy of the law. I mean, I was trying to think of like how long that might take him. So he, he would have to go to the Levitical priest, get a copy of the law, and then he would have to make his own copy of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, so that that would be on his heart. And then it says, not only first does he have to write this down, then he has to read from it every day. Just so that your nation doesn't get messed up. Well, their nation is in a mess. And why? Well, the evidence is pretty obvious. Their, their book of the law is over in a corner somewhere under a bunch of other junk and other gods that have been brought in. And so you talk about why is it so important that we center our lives around God's word? I think we can all agree that things in our world, things in our country, have gotten off base. There's a lot of stuff that isn't the way that we want it to be or that God's word tells us it should be. And why? Well, I think, I think the main reason is because, man, our foundation has slipped. That, that God's word is, is not front and center. And, and you know what? The, the people that hold the most of the responsibility for this is not all the non-Christians in our country. It's us. Because if we're neglecting or ha don't have the passion for God's word, why, why would the rest of them? And so Josiah, what happens when, he, when this happens is he sends out the order to completely get rid of all the foreign gods through the whole country. And they go down, they start tearing down all these idols, all these altars, all these things. And then when they do it, they come together in Jerusalem and they celebrate. For the first time in a long time, they celebrate the Passover. And then Josiah has a high priest get up and they read. He reads the Torah, the law, to the entire, to all the people. And I, so think about this. I mean, you show up and, and you have Passover, and then they get up and they start reading. How, how long would it take to read Genesis through Deuteronomy? And all these people are sitting there listening to the law be read. And some, and, and, I mean, and, and I was thinking about this. I was reading this. I was thinking, I was getting so convicted because I was like, I can barely make it through Leviticus 
in a few weeks, right? These guys are sitting there, and it's just being read to them, and they're just like absorbing all of this. And so he, all of this stuff happens, and Josiah, he starts this revival of sorts in, in the Jewish nation, okay? And he's 26 years old when this whole thing happens, and God, because he's true to his word, had already said, hey, you know what? The nation is going to have to pay for its idolatry. But he says, but Josiah, because of you, because you've humbled yourself, because you've turned to my word, he says, because you've repented, he says, this won't happen in your lifetime. You know, um, when, when I go to Cambodia, um, you know, we go there to lead and to teach pastors, and there will be a couple hundred of them. Some of them, I, some of you have heard me talk about this. Some of them will, will sit in the back of a truck for 15 hours ju- just to get to the place where we're, where we're doing this training. And, and what's amazing is, is, um, is we, we wake up because you're, you know, after all the flights and everything, you're kind of all messed up. So we wake up early in the morning and, you know, you'll wake up early in the morning, and you'll, if you look out the window, the, you look over by the chapel, and the lights are on, and you're like, what's going on in there? Well, all these pastors are in there, Bibles open, in prayer. And, and I got to tell you, that it, every time I go, every time I go, what's amazing is, you know, I'm like, hey, I, I'm going, I'm going, and I'm supposed to be teaching these guys something. And I'm watching them with this incredible reverence of God's word. And they're up at 4.30 in the morning just praying and just like in God's word and together seeking God's word and, and praying for their people. And all I can do is like Josiah is I can go, man, I have got to get my act together. I mean, I think we've settled for way too long on kind of a fast food devotional type of life. Meanwhile, we hold the matchless, powerful word of God in our hands. And if it is what I believe it claims to be is true, the very words of God Almighty, then it demands a superior position in our lives, in our schedules, in our homes, in our church, in every area of our lives. So, I was thinking about, like, what, what do we need to do about all this? Maybe today we all need to take the same posture as Josiah. Don't tear your robes. But I think that, that we, as a people, would do well to be able to repent and, and admit that oftentimes we don't give God's word the place that it deserves in our lives. And that we would commit to come together and say, hey, we, we want God's word to be central, foundational, and, and it deserves my attention. Folks, if you believe that it is truly the words of God, it's more than a self-help book, it's more than a rule book, it's more than a history book, This is God's love story to you and me. So the question is, how will you respond to that? 
Earlier, Devin read from Psalms 119. Um, it's, got a hundred, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's got 176 verses. But in those 176 verses, there's 168 references to how much David says he loves God's word. He used words like your law, your truth, all those things. But I want to encourage you, um, maybe today, is is to just go home and, you know, or or maybe over the next week, read, read a section of Psalms 119 every single day. And just let it pour over your heart. But this morning, my my invitation for you is that that we would simply put our trust in God's Word. And and if in your life you've not given it the place it deserves, then, then I would encourage you this morning to maybe take time and like Josiah, have a have a repentant heart and say, Lord, I man, I have been neglecting your word. And Lord, I, I need you to teach me from it. And I, I, I need to grow to love it. And I guarantee you the way to grow to love it is, is just to be in it. It has the power of the Holy Spirit, the same breath that breathed life into us is in God's word. And if you spend time in it, it will breathe life into you and it will set you free. So how could you not respond to that? It's how we know everything about the way God showed his love for us and about the amazing grace that God gave us that even caused him to send his own son to give his life for us, which is why every week we we take communion together. If you've got your your communion elements with you, you can take those out. Um, If you need some there, there's always some on the sides or in the back there. You can grab some of that. But, um, you know, the way that we know that Jesus gave his life for us, that, that he was crucified but then raised from the dead, the way that we know this is through God's word. And so I want to encourage you to just dive in and just allow God's love to embrace you this morning because in his crucifixion, He screamed how much he loved you. And so together, let's take the the bread that reminds us of Jesus' broken body together. And the cup that reminds us of Jesus' shed blood that brings forgiveness for our sins. Let's take that together. And over the course of the next few minutes while we think and pray and sing, I want to encourage you, if you need to just be in a place of uh, repentance, then, you know, feel free to come forward. If you, if you have something you'd like to pray for, I'm going to ask our, some of our elders to come up front, and they'll be there for you. If you want someone to pray, there will be people in the prayer corners. Um, we, we just want to pray for you, but take this time and ask yourself, you know, how will you respond to the amazing wonder of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word. God, we believe that it's true. Help us, Father, in our actions to demonstrate the place that it deserves in our lives. Father, we love you. We praise you. 
We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.